Welcome back to Scripture Central. Come follow me for the Book of Mormon. This is John W. Welch, and I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson, excited to talk about Nephi's vision of the Tree of Life. Today, we're on chapters 11 through 15 in 1 Nephi. And this is some of the most beautiful text in the entire Scripture. I'm so glad we get a chance to dive in today. This is amazing. It really is. He starts out in chapter 11 saying he's just finished hearing his dad's vision and he is pondering it. He's thinking about it. That's chapter 11, verse 1. What does the word ponder mean to you, Lynn? Ponder is the level of thinking beyond just casual thought. But I usually include it in my prayer. I'm asking the Lord, lead my thoughts. Help me to understand. What about you? Well, when you, I, I think when you ponder uh, the the word has to do with weighing, and it's weighty. It ponderous. Something is ponderous ah. when it weighs a lot, and you ponder something when you that. think heavily about it, and you weigh and think it. about it. So, pondering isn't just being quizzical, but actually starting to put the pieces together and think about how it impresses you and presses deeply upon not you. Not a not a fleeting thought. Oh right. yeah, I'd love yeah. this. I think it's a great word. And then it says, in my heart, I was caught away in the spirit of the Lord, yea, into an exceeding high mountain, which I had never seen, and upon which before I had never set foot. So the Lord is able to allow him to see a vision of himself in a different location, but mountains are often temples. You know, it's higher places for higher thoughts, for godly things. Moses is in a mountain. Perfect. And then he says, the spirit comes to him and says, What desirest thou? And I love to just step back and think about that. What do you really want? You've heard it in other forms of scripture. Um, What seekest thou? Or I think my prayers, you know, we're asked by our prophet not to have our prayers like a shopping list. You know, if I were to look at my last prayer as what I really wanted most, would I have communicated that or would I have been asking for safety and for health and strength? Or would I be looking for deeper spiritual knowledge? Do I really want to know God? And he really wanted to see the dream of his father, of the tree of life. Now, his father has had other visions, but we're talking right now about the tree of life vision. And Nephi, when he says, I want to know the things that my father have seen. I mean, that's I want to be like my dad. And Nephi's the the fourth son. He's young. And I think when he has this respect for his father and his mother, I think that's a subtext here that's very important. Oh, it is is because the whole dream has both Sariah and Lehi at the tree. Yeah, it's a very important part. Nephi really models for us here the keeping of the fifth commandment. Yeah. That you must honor your father and your mother. Laman and Lemuel don't do quite so good a job as that, but you really honor your parents and your ancestors when you want to know more about their spiritual life. Yes, yes. And when he says, what desirest thou? He knows that this has been this ponderous weight. And Nephi is not just wanting to see what his dad saw because his dad saw it. I think he wants to know and feel I feel like in times when I haven't understood where someone's coming from and I have prayed to help me understand that perspective, 
um, it's a relationship issue as well. And the Lord allows us to understand each other better in, in those relationship requests. I think that's right. And I think that Nephi just doesn't want this for his idle curiosity. No. He knows that he needs to know this. I also feel like the Spirit can also help us know what to pray for. And if he is in a place of the Spirit and he's been moved by the Spirit, he said the whole power of the Holy Ghost was with him as he was listening to his father, that his desire is that. So what happens? What does he see? Well, that's the big question because he's asked, I want to see what my father saw. Now you might say, Lehi saw several visions. Does he want to see the throne theophany? What does the angel say in the next verse? It says, Nephi, do you behold the tree? that your father saw. So now we're clearly engaged. Nephi is going to get to see the same thing that Lehi saw back in chapter 8. And Nephi also testifies to the angel, I believe all the words of my father. And that's when the angel is so excited, or whoever this guide is, the word of the spirit, they refer to him here. He says, Hosanna to the most high God, for he is God over all the earth, yea, even above all. And blessed art thou, Nephi, because thou believest in the son of the most high God, wherefore thou shalt behold all the things which thou hast desired." This is one of the many beautiful titles of our Lord that are unique to the Book of Mormon. And I really would encourage everyone who's doing their reading through the Book of Mormon to, as you're reading through the Book of Mormon, to look for names of the Lord and to keep a record of them because we learn so much about our Savior and our Heavenly Parents by looking at the names that are used to describe them. And hear this beautiful description of the Most High God. And... As you look, Nephi will use lots of names that express uh, in different ways how Jesus was a son. And Jesus himself, he's a son of God, and he is the only begotten son, and he's the most beloved. And Nephi uses a lot of these expressions. Well, Jack, this is so important because this is one of the major points of apostasy, mm-hmm. is taking this son out of the picture. Sometimes monotheism is thought of as only one God and there could not be a son. And that is perpetuated by many people who believe the Bible. And so I can see that this would have been one of those things. But the first thing that Nephi records then is to show how this is literally going to be a son of God. And we'll just turn the page over to verse 13. He sees Jerusalem He also sees this little city called Nazareth, and I'm just laughing that they're calling it a city, population of 200 to 400, and they're calling it, but you know, that's what they had. That's where they were. And he says, I beheld a virgin, and she was exceedingly fair and white, meaning pure in that era. And it came to pass that I saw the heavens open, and an angel came down and said, what beholdest thou? I love this dialogue. Nephi is not given an answer. He asks a question, and then the angel says, what do you think? Let me tell you something. He wants you to extrapolate it. He wants him to think and, and take ownership. He wants to be invested in this answer. That's a great teaching technique, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. so what, what do you see here? What do you think? And then Nephi comes up with an answer. He sees the birth, and this is verse 17, uh, where he sees the Son of God. And actually, this is the center of Nephi's message here, which is very powerful. I'm going to read verse 17. He said unto him, I know 
that he loveth his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. To me, this is saying, if we know that God loves us and he loves you and he loves my enemies and he loves my forefathers and he loves the people who are coming after, if I know he loves me, I can endure what I don't understand. And it's going to be okay. Yeah, this is, that's why I think it's the center of Nephi's message. Once we understand the love. When you say it's at the center. Okay. This is chapter 11. How many chapters are there in 1 Nephi? 22. 22. And I asked myself the question, why does uh, Nephi have two books, 1 Nephi and 2 Nephi? Nobody else does. 2 Nephi begins kind of, you know, right after where 1 Nephi ends. The book of 1 Nephi can be analyzed in a number of ways. Yes. But most effectively, it is seen as a chiastic structure. So these reversed parallels. With chapter 11 is the middle. So the most important part is in the center. That's right. And you, you'll have, for example, uh, things that happen twice, like... They go to get the daughters, which we talked about last time. That's in chapter 7. But they don't marry them until chapter 16. Ah. Now, maybe they married them sooner than you might well, think. Betrothed. Well, they were betrothed. But yes, yes, yes. But, but the balancing there says that there are two things that are important here. Yes. And in the first part, his brothers taunt him and say, you can't do this. Well, when you get to building the ship, Nephi has to build the ship and being told you can't do that either. Okay. And so as you work your way out through the text, you see a lot of parallels and they're probably intentional. They probably are. Especially with an important message like this one. And, And they don't need to be particularly rigorous if Their purpose is to focus on the most important thing, which is at the middle of the book. And he says that the whole purpose of his intent is to bring people to Christ. And how does he know about Christ? He has learned about it in this heavenly mountain experience. Chapter 11. That's right. Okay. I'm also fascinated with the way that the angel directs him to look and to see and to behold. And so I just thought, Nephi repeats that as long as we're talking about parallelisms. And there are over 180 references in this little teeny book of 1 Nephi to look and see. I think he's really trying to encourage his readers to be sincere seekers here. So skipping down in chapter 11 to verse 20, he sees a child in the virgin's arms. And then in 21, the angel says, do you know what the meaning of the tree is? Now, to me, those are like disconnected thoughts, but he's trying to make him think. And that's when Nephi gets it. And he says, I answered him saying, yea, it is the love of God, which setteth itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men. Wherefore, it is the most desirable of all other things. And it just dawned on me, Thanks for bringing this out. That how is it that Jesus Christ is the tree? Well, in the tree that Lehi saw, there's white fruit. Yes. And partaking of that white fruit gives you joy. Yes. And eternal joy. Yes. And you are there under the umbrella of God's power. Well, the tree is Jesus Christ. 
It has to be. Who also, by partaking of his flesh and blood, we then become children of God, and we come under his power, and we are at the tree, and that sacramental element Image. Mm -hmm. will then grow up in us as something to delicious. become a tree of life ourselves. That's what Alma will finally tell us in Alma chapter 32. So the tree and Jesus have a lot to do with each other. Well, the tree has to be Jesus because of the Garden of Eden. Because Explain that. Well, you can't partake of that tree in your sins or else you will live forever in your sins from Adam and Eve's story. And so the tree of life was guarded. But here now, the tree is delicious because we can be forgiven and we can only be forgiven through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And in my life, the times that I have felt the most love from the Lord has followed sincere repentance. You know, that turning yourself back to God, turning around, apologizing, changing your heart, that's when you feel the greatest love of God. And you feel the greatest love of God when you have, um, when you can express love to a child or when you express love to someone else, you can feel love towards God. There's many ways to feel the love of God, but repentance is one of these beautiful ways. But the tree, I think, is the our Redeemer, the Messiah, our beloved Jesus Christ. I think that's wonderful. And the repentance what happens in Lehi's vision of this is people all have to come to the tree. Yes. We talk about coming unto Christ. So the coming under the tree and coming unto Christ are... Are synonymous with repentance as well. They illustrate, that illustrates it. And the path, of course, you have to come under Christ by following the path that leads to the tree in Lehi's vision. Well, and, and Lehi has the rod, too. That's and the right. rod is that word of God. So we can come unto Christ through his words and holding, pressing forward. So we begin to see how, how the tree, what Lehi saw, was actually what Nephi is going to be shown. But there's more. Nephi goes through a lot more details in his account than his We have his chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14. And I got wondering, all right, we can now find the tree of life and Jesus being related. What about these other things? There were actually four groups that come to the tree in 1 Nephi chapter 8. Okay, in Lehi's vision. First, there's Lehi himself. The prophet gets uh -huh. there. And then he wants his family to come. Yes. And some come and some don't. Yes. And then he sees great multitudes coming. Yes. And some of them will come to the tree, and but some... many will end up in the mists of darkness being lost. Uh huh. And finally, there's a fourth group, and that's the group that comes. And as we said last time, they humbly fall down and are thankful as they fall and offer their gratitude for being there. So how does Nephi's vision relate to Lehi's? Okay, so we have four groups. And do we see those same four groups in Nephi? So what does Nephi see? Well, it begins in chapter 11. Yes. What we now call chapter 11, but that's stage one. Okay. Where he learns about the condescension of Jesus. Jesus is coming down. He's being born as a oh. mortal. This is the one person who is coming. Now that's Lehi coming. So we have that first stage. Yes. 
And then secondly, we have in chapter 12, Nephi's seeing that there will be many people who will hear of Jesus's preaching in in the Holy Land. Yeah, he talks about the 12 apostles and that they're going to judge the 12 tribes. So we see Christ's ministry. Yeah, yeah. And some of them are even in his family, James and others. But there's a family, a small group of followers that will follow Jesus in Galilee, but many of them will not. And so some will not come to Jesus, even though he's in their midst. And then the third chapter, chapter 13, what we now call chapter 13, is the gospel then being taken to the world, to the great and spacious people, people all over. Uh Verse 13 talks about the nations and the kingdoms of the Gentiles. Verse 6, great and abominable church. Yep. Does that sound like the great and spacious building to you? Okay. Okay, You get the picture there. Okay, but let me just go back to the... Follow what I'm saying? Yeah. So in Lehi's vision, this is the third group. This is those who did not partake. And so you're saying this whole point about the apostasy fits into the same parallel from his dad's vision. Oh, yes. Jack, I'm ca- I'm following you. Getting this. Okay. Okay. So he's just elaborating on how this will affect not just a few people in the vision, but the whole world. Because it's not just the time of Christ. It affects us now. And it does. And that, that'll get to stage four. That's when the people do come to the tree, right? In Lehi's vision? Yeah. There are some who will come. And they will learn and they will partake and they will be glad and they will stay faithful. Now Nephi is seeing that there will be a restoration. There will be some who will come and will partake of the fullness of the gospel. But this will then lead to, in chapter 14, a final standoff. And Nephi sees that there will just be two groups. The English translation that Joseph Smith gives us says there will be two churches. But the word church, at least in Greek, is ecclesia. It means an assembly, two gatherings. One of them will be a great and spacious building with all kinds of various things and people doing all kinds of things. One will be uh, a much more cohesive, unified church. Or those who are a cohesive group of people who are striving to have the Lord. Yes. But the one, uh, Nephi says, is the church of the Lamb, or the gathering of the Lamb, and then all others. And that is what Nephi's vision ultimately sees. There are people who are at the tree of life, and then there are all the others. And I don't want to um, negate the fact that there are saving ordinances and there are truths that need to be restored. But I also believe all that sincerely come unto Christ and seek him will be part of that church, whether in this life or the next life. It's not us and them. Well, I've never been able to see Lehi's vision as tightly connected to Nephi's. So thank you for pointing out that you sort of zoomed out in history to see a, a, a worldview as from the symbols that were introduced by Lehi. That was that was That's correct. Uh, all I did to find this was I said, Nephi tells us that he wants to see the things that his father has seen. Yes. And now I want to find out what that means. And as I worked on it, uh, it all did come together. So open up. There are two charts. Oh, great. Let's look look Uh, at these charts. Put them up here on our slides. The first chart I want to mention that comes out of this project 
is uh, chart number 92 in charting the Book of Mormon. And as you can see, it tabulates on one side what Lehi saw and on the other column what Nephi sees. And you can see the parallels tracking closely all the way down. So that's kind of the overview of the two. But then to make things a little more useful, because it's kind of hard to remember 25 things. <laughs> I then also put together another chart, which is chart number 99. And I call this the four stages of the Nephite prophetic view. The four stages happen to follow very closely Nephi's four chapters. What you see is that this pattern will be repeated by Nephi and others. Abinadi will use this same pattern. And it really does boil down to four articles of faith. Jesus will come. He will be rejected by his own people. And there will be a scattering, a second scattering. Lehi and Nephi knew that there would be a first scattering because they were a part of that with the Babylonian conquest and then the Jews and Jerusalem being scattered and destroyed. But the vision is showing the Roman scattering of all Judea. That's right. But there will then, after Jesus, after his death... Yeah, in 70 AD. Yeah. Some will reject Jesus, and to the extent that there will then be a great scattering beyond Again, that. Yes. And then the third stage is that... There will be then a day of what we might call the Gentiles or the nations. That's what the word Gentile means, means the yeah. nations. Yeah. And that's all these different nations that now are created. And that's what you see in the great and spacious building with all these different groups and different people. But the Lord will not forget the Gentiles and he will bring to them. We get the restoration. The gospel. And that is then stage four. I love it which is then the coming of Christ and the ultimate victory of Christ over any forces that oppose him, particularly uh, the forces of Satan in this case. So I've come to call this particular worldview, the Nephite prophetic worldview, as I mentioned. It's based in Lehi and Nephi, but you can use this as a tool to help you understand what Nephi and others are saying when honestly, it's really quite confusing if you don't know the key. So you get the picture of what's going on in Nephi's vision and the prophetic view that he has. As it parallels to his dad's vision. We will see one more place in 1 Nephi where these four stages are represented. That's and we'll talk week. about that next time because it comes at the end of 1 Nephi. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> And it's interesting to track how that apostasy will happen. Nephi is pretty explicit. He first says that they will take away certain parts of the gospel. Yeah, I've got this here. It's verse 29, I think. Because of these things which are taken away of the gospel of the Lamb, an exceeding great many do stumble, mm -hmm. yea, insomuch that Satan hath great power over them. So after Jesus dies and the apostles are gone, Nephi sees that things will be taken away from the gospel. Uh-huh. And we know that certain things like baptism, an understanding of the, res the physical resurrection of Jesus is lost uh -huh. fairly early. Oh, very early. Uh, baptism for the dead is certainly lost. Uh-huh. But the scriptures are still there. The texts are still there. 
but they take things first away from the gospel. Agency is taken. Satanic influences are taken. Yeah, I you might totally... say the whole plan of salvation somehow gets confused because there are problems in early Christianity and arguing and philosophical changes. They're trying to make it communicative with the Greco-Roman world. Yeah, yeah. After things are taken away from the gospel, Nephi sees that they take away many covenants. That's the second thing that gets lost. So once you lose the plan of salvation, then the covenant of baptism is no longer understood the way it originally was. And other things like temple ordinances are dropped. This is the time when people are moving over to the great and spacious building, following the ways of the world instead of the ways of the gospel. And the third step that Nephi sees in the apostasy is that after things were taken from the gospel and covenants were removed, uh -huh. then things are taken away from the Bible, from the book. So can you name a book or two that maybe was there that was eventually discarded? Well, how about the Epistle of Barnabas? Oh, that's the New Testament. That's yes, the New Testament yes, 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 I have read that. The Epistle of Barnabas was not canonized because they talked too much about the re resurrection, I Physical think. Physical resurrection. Yeah, they were saying Jesus had a body and they didn't like that because exactly. they were trying to show that Christ was still spirit because the Greeks didn't think physical body was pure enough. And so I think Barnabas wasn't accepted because of the physical resurrection. But in the early Christian writings and even in Codex Sinaiticus, uh -huh. Barnabas is a part of the scriptures. I didn't know that. But it gets lost. It just oh. gets quietly dropped. Okay, okay. How about the narrative of Zosimus? Yeah, we talked about yeah. that last time. I don't know. Was that ever in the canon? I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, okay, okay. But the bottom line is they're not there. They're praying and precious things taken out. But it's by removing these books or things, actual words that are taken out. But that does, that's not the first thing that happens. Uh -huh. So the apostasy happens at a much earlier stage. And then they are removed almost deliberately to prove their point, um, as if they were trying to go before a court of law and saying, these things obviously don't there. In fact, I have to tell you, one of my graduate teachers was teaching the resurrection of the Lord. And you remember in Luke at the very end where he's on the road to Emmaus and then he eats with them? My professor said, and I don't want to denounce anyone other's faith tradition. But from his faith tradition, he said, Luke, Luke, you've got it wrong. Jesus never could have eaten. He never had a body. <laughs> he, he, he was saying Luke got it wrong. I, I just thought, oh, don't, don't say the scriptures are wrong. Anyway, that was the same ideology. And this uh, the Platonizing or spiritualizing of the gospel happens in the second and third centuries with Neoplatonism. So we can see, we can track how this happens. And you said some of the plain and precious things taken out. I was fascinated when we studied the Old Testament a couple years to find that Satan was removed. The word devil is not even in the Old Testament. And Satan is basically in the book of Job. There's only four other references outside of the book of Job for the word Satan. In the Garden of Eden story, we don't even have the word temptation or tempter. I mean, it's completely denuded. We, If you're going to look for Satan, you're going to have a hard time. That's right. Until you get to the Book of Mormon. And in this vision... He's all over the place. We see devil and Satan. And so I've made a little chart to show 
the numbers of how often we can recognize who Satan is, what he's doing, what his purposes are, and how we put ourselves in his path. Because he even says, once we let go of the iron rod, we then are swooped into his control. I think we learn more about the adversary in this cha- these chapters than we do in the whole Old Testament. This is just a powerful place to learn about our enemy. And Nephi, of course, will then talk in Second Nephi uh, chapters. Yes. You know, he goes down through the ways of the devil. Yeah. And wow, does he spell it out? Yeah, yeah. I think that was one of those things that were the plain and precious things that were removed. You're right. And what we had said before was that what Lehi sees is then this the basic plan, the plan of salvation, and uh-huh. what is lost are pieces of that. And if you lose the plan of salvation. Then you don't understand the role, like you say, of, of Lucifer or of Satan and the premortal council and the. An agency and all of that, yeah. Well, let's finish up chapter 14. We don't finish his vision. He says, Stop writing. The rest of it is going to be recorded by the apostle of the Lamb. I think he's talking about the book of Revelation. Certainly is. In fact, even his name is given, isn't it, Jack? Yes, and his name shall be called John. Yep. Now, what the book of Revelation actually gives is the account of the final episode of the, uh, you might say, the showdown between the forces of good and evil. Yes, it does. When the seven seals are unloosed and the judgment finally happens and the new Jerusalem is built. Now, Nephi doesn't see that part. Well, he doesn't record it. Well, he may see a glimpse of it. It's kind of vague. He knows it's going to happen. He knows from chapter 14 that ultimately, and he's told this, and he tells us this much, that the good will prevail. Yes, yes, definitely he gets that How that will happen and what will happen in the way of the final judgment, I think he doesn't have much more detail about. I think he's probably seen some of it, but... I'm not sure he would have known what to make of all the, uh, you know, the beasts and the well, things that are in the book of Revelation. Well, I, it's, it's interesting that um, we do have, though, the fact that we know the author, because this is a debated right. topic. Any, any New Testament scholar knows that we aren't going to claim the author of this as John, the beloved, the apostle. They're going to debate it. And yet here we have a second witness that the author of the winding up of the days and the Savior's second coming, and the majority of the text is our day and age where the seven vials are being poured out on the earth, is going to be written by this man. So the Book of Mormon comes back again and again to testify of the things of the Bible. The fact that it was in Bethabara is only mentioned in the Gospel of John, and yet we have a second witness here in First Nephi. The fact that the revelation is written by John, we now have a second witness here in chapter 14. It, I, I really think it's an appropriate title to say this is another witness of Jesus Christ. We, we don't have enough. We need focusing on our Savior. And in chapter 13, uh, Nephi is also shown that there will be that book. And so... He doesn't know what the content is. And in fact, even though uh, the book of Revelation wasn't given great prominence in early Christianity, it was there. And I think the angel is saying, even though there will be people who will not follow 
they will be given enough that that there will be some faithful and there will be records enough that when the final restoration occurs, there will be other books that will come forth. There will be things that will come out of that early generation of Christians that will testify of the truthfulness of the Bible and of the Book of Mormon. Let's move on to chapter 15, when his brothers want to find out what his dad saw. That's right. And so Nephi says, why didn't you ask the Lord? You know, to me, it's just so fascinating that he knew. Yeah, that's verse 8. I said unto them, have you inquired of the Lord? That is the answer for all of us. And most people would say, I didn't get an answer. Well, then I have to go back to verse 3, where he says, you're going to have to do more than just inquire. You're going to have to look unto the Lord. You're going to have to seek. You're going to have to repent. You're going to have to change. If you don't get an answer the first or second or third time or the fourth year or the fifth year, keep asking. Nephi must have come down and started telling them a little bit about what he had seen. I'm sure that they had already read Lehi's vision or had been told that. Yeah, I think Le- 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 Lehi, Lehi told tells him. the whole family. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you, you must wonder how Laman and Lemuel felt when they don't come to the tree. Yeah. Well, I think that's one reason why they want to talk about it. That's right. And I think that's why they say, okay, tell us more. Why doesn't the Lord tell us these things? You know, this is really interesting because the way he answers it includes the idea that we have to be nourished from the vine. And I see that as something that Christ also spoke about in the Last Supper, but it's also in Isaiah and it's in Ezekiel. You know, it's all over the Old Testament where we have this idea that we are part of the vine and broken off and nourished from the vine. That They had so few plants in that day and age. You know, the idea that you have a either a grapevine or an olive tree or something, it would be very consistent that you could replant it. But verse 16 reads in chapter 15, Behold, I say unto you, yea, they shall be remembered among the house of Israel, and they shall be grafted in, being the natural branch of the olive tree in the true olive tree. And then he goes on, he talks about the Jews being rejected, and his dad is seeing these people coming and going, and he's trying to show them a broader history of the world. And I think it's so important to them because they are one of these branches that have been broken off. You know, they've come from Jerusalem, they've been broken off. And so this part of the vision um, is something they could, Laman and Lemuel could accept this part. Yes, we are part of that. And that's in stage three, where there will be this scattering. Yes. And that's all a part of what's happening. Where do you think they learned about the grafting of the olive tree? Well, we're told that it was part of the brass plates. And we'll talk about that in Jacob 5. Zenos. So they've read that. But it's not only there. It's in other places. The The olive tree is mentioned many times in the Old Testament. And they would have known that from their own experience in Galilee, in uh, Samaria, wherever they had lived, Jerusalem. Uh, We don't know where Lehi's property was, but it probably had olive trees on it. I also feel like it's fascinating that once Nephi finishes talking about the the dream, he then goes to talk about Isaiah. This is chapter 15, verse 20. And he said, I did rehearse unto them the words of Isaiah, who spoke concerning the restoration. So it goes back to your idea that there's there's always the hope of the gathering. There's always the hope that, and I feel like whether it's in this life or the next life, there is always hope that you can receive the message of the Savior again. And you'll be able to find that truth. The Book of Mormon is so consistent at saying, 
there's always another plan that God will always welcome you home. We prodigals who are broken off because of our wickedness. Yeah. The idea of being grafted off would appeal then to Laman and Lemuel who were told that they didn't come to the tree at first. But if they would come, they will be grafted in and they will become a productive and important part of the tree of life. And that's when Laman and Lemuel now start asking the specific questions about what's what's the rod? It's the word of God. It is verses 22, 23, 24, you know, he, he start, what's the tree? What's this? What's this? You know, and this is where we get so many of our symbols is in this later. I think they were beginning to trust him enough to keep asking. And the dialogue was opening up a wonderful conversation. That's when he finds out what's the water. Oh, well, dad didn't talk about it, but this is sin. This is temptation. This is filthy. You know, I, I love this part of the discussion. And, and I think you're absolutely right that Laman and Lemuel have, have uh, you might say, a Rubicon here to cross or not. Are they going to stay with this group? Are they going to go with Lehi? I mean, they're still there in the valley of uh, the first camp. They're, they're just a couple of weeks outside of Jerusalem, down on the Red Sea, borders of the Red Sea. And so they could bail out, but they choose to follow and they want to know, okay, tell me what the rod is. Tell me what we need to know. And for whatever it's worth, they do all pull together. And they couldn't reason. have gotten through the desert if they weren't united. It's kind of like the early church pioneers. Yeah, yeah. it's like all of us. It's you, like you, us today. You, you we don't cannot, get across the plains alone. We cannot be so politically divided that we can't find some mutuality to work together. But I think another reason why they hang together we'll talk about next week with the marriages. So the marriages are going to be consummated next week. The betrothals, the period of engagement will be over. But before we leave this beautiful chapter on the tree of life, I just want to testify that I believe that God wants all of us to come to that tree of life. And that tree of life is a representation of our Savior. And the fruit is His love. And we do it. We can feel God's love by studying our scriptures. Hang on to the rod. Hang on to the Word of God, and you will be able to feel God's love as you prayerfully approach it. I believe this with my heart and my soul. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Amen.